0: Today, I am joined by Lynn manuel Rwanda, a Twitter poster, um, a, a very learned man and a subject of the British Empire. Welcome,
1: Lin. Uh, good morning. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: Thank you very much for coming on. Um, you are uh, definitely one of my favorite posters, at least recently. You are someone who's got experiences um that are similar to mine, but much more in depth. And uh, you also have a lot of knowledge uh, to interpret those experiences. Uh, you, um, you are a, uh, like I said, a subject of the British Empire, and you live in uh, in the on the island. Um, you are um, an indigenous um, Briton, I think. Not sure. We're not going to disclose exactly where you are from but
1: in the UK. Uh, and you um, I am about- actually, I am actually half Rwandan.
0: Oh, exactly, yeah, yes. That's, as the name implies <laughs> hence I'm, the, I'm hence sure. the name yes um, and you you know a lot about a subject that interests me quite a lot, um and uh, you've written about this as well. i mean wh- one of the the main things I wanted to discuss with you is um is is the UK and the dysfunctions that I've witnessed in the UK, and I'm sure, as someone who is from there, uh, you feel about them maybe even more intensely than than I have. Because for me, it was just like, okay, I I respect this culture. You know, this is a cradle of civilization. Um, I, I I want to participate in this culture at least temporarily. Um, and it, I just felt sad. Oh, I just poor, felt poor sad. Thing.
2: Yeah. Poor, poor
0: thing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, and um, I was allowed to, so I did. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. it was, um, not, not the best, um, for, like I said, the indigenous people there. Um, I mean, what, what is, is going on? What is the, the the main source of the dysfunction that we see in, in the UK? It's not just the UK, but the UK kind of has its own very specific flavor of, of whatever is going on. um uh, Yeah.
1: It's uh this is a subject about which we could probably talk for several hours, and perfect. <laughs> it's going to be. I'll have to to kind of decide which bits we're going to go into on the fly because there's se- several people who have documented bits of this much more um, completely than I ever could. Um, Peter Hitchens, of course, being the most obvious academic agent who you, who you've had on, is also very good with bits of this as well. Um, what are the main what are the main problems? Um so, uh it's difficult to know where to begin with this, honestly. Um there have all some of these problems are sort of baked into the way that the country is, into baked into the, the fabric of the fabric of the place. They go back to the nineteenth century, even before the present dysfunction, if you like, is Decidedly post Second World War and particularly post 1997. And anybody who's had the misfortune of hearing me gibbering on or had the misfortune of hearing anybody versed in the subject gibbering on will know that's a significant date for many different reasons. I think that the two things that define what's wrong with britain as a country and the british as a people in the present day is that we have a an almost complete case of cultural amnesia we don't actually know a great deal about who we are we don't know a great deal about where we have come from and we either don't know or are trying to ignore where we're going and i think that you could blame this potentially on three things um and most obvious one is the Blairite Cultural Revolution, if you would like to call it that, um, instituted from 1997 onwards, although with antecedents. This is why it's, it's quite complicated, because all of the big dates you can point to, the stuff going on before them that um, are very heavily influenced. So Tony Blair didn't create the system that we've got out of nothing. He found it half formed. and put the finishing touches on it formalized it turned it turned it into something that would work to his ends and perpetuate his vision and the vision of the people around him even after long after he was gone as it is doing um so we've got the blair reforms broadly we've got um the fact that we are essentially in all but name a colony of the united states of america um I'm always, I'm still surprised by the number of Americans that I run into in Britain, even in the most backwards and out of the way places that you can possibly imagine. They're they're everywhere. We we may as well be an American state in many ways at this point, especially insofar as things like foreign policy and our present cultural distractions are concerned. But
2: thirdly, and underratedly, I
1: think I don't hear many people talking about this in explicit terms. The, we, destroyed our, we destroyed ourselves during the Second World War in order to win, in order to try and win that war. But the culture of Britain in the modern day was a creation of the 1940s for a very specific end of defeating Germany in a military conflict, and without that purpose or any other purpose the way that our society has been organized doesn't really work. We, we were before, certainly before the First World War, and even, even still in the interwar period, we were a country that would have been an American libertarian's dream. The, the government didn't have much to do with its citizens. It might occasionally collect taxes from them. The state was relatively small at least in at least at home abroad there was much more going on in the colonies there was a much more sort of formalized administrative system any services that were meted out by the public sector it was all done at the local level as local people wanted it was a much less centralized society and in order to prosecute a global conflict we created an almost entirely militarized society and an almost entirely centralized society. Britain in the, 19th, in the late 1940s, and, and the period immediately after the war, was essentially a modern day and much less cool reincarnation of ancient Sparta. The entire state was dedicated to supporting the military. Um, to the extent that it took us ten, fifteen years almost to completely demobilise the armies that we had abroad, with um, huge social upheaval as a consequence, um, and we've never really replaced. We never really bothered. Nobody's ever really had a, the vision to, rep, to try and replace that. And any post-war vision of Britain as a as a nation, Britain as a state, always comes back to this. And this is it's an interesting topic that I think needs to be sort of explored more because i think if we don't acknowledge this we're gonna keep making the same mistake that we do when it when it comes to this sort of thing you'll have seen this in in terms of um the current situation in ukraine every if you if you follow british politics at all every idiot in a ministerial position will stand will will sort of say we need we need to make a str- we need to make a strong statement. We need to stand up to Putin. And they what they're doing is referring to they're referring to 1938. They're referring to uh pre-Sudetenland um Germany in ter- in terms of like what they think our foreign policy should be, that every everyone who might possibly be bad is always Hitler forever. And we always have to not appease Hitler forever, otherwise, you know, where's you know, it, it's it's difficult to sort of unpack this all in a succinct five minute period. But I think you probably get the idea of where I'm going with this.
0: Yes, um, I think this is you know, this is a, a theme on on our end that you know, the like in the words of, uh, of Thomas Seven Seven Seven, the uh, you know, uh, um, the right wing was outlawed after World War Two, um, mm. and the whole framing of reality, of history, of, of, of the world has only been, you know, yeah, captured within this perspective that, you know, we, we are heading towards the right side of history or, you know, onwards to progress. There is no, um, there is nothing of value in a um, kind, of, kind of these, the values represented by you know the, the the dark side of history that we won't uh, we won't acknowledge. So.
1: so, I think this is an int- this is an interesting point of departure between Britain and America, specifically um, culturally. We didn't quite have the same the same sort of complete cultural revolution in the forties or in, before the Second World War than America did. If um, the closest thing that we've had to that. Is the 1997 reforms? We're we're a much more slow-moving place, generally speaking. In a lot of ways, in some ways, considerably more radical, but in a lot of ways, a lot slower. Um, We still had um, a strong-ish establishment that was at least nominally conservative following the Second World War, because if you if you have everything focused around the military, I think it's probably difficult. To be too egalitarian, you have to be hierarchical. There has to be a sort. Of, there has to be a, a sense of common purpose that isn't purely to advance the cultural revolution. So here, it, it's happened. It's happened more slowly and more piecemeal. So until the, as you will know if you've read any of uh, Mister Hitchens's works. Uh, until quite recently our gun laws for instance were were very relaxed very relaxed indeed even by the standards of many american states but they've been slowly eroded through opportunism and almost in secret you, you over here the government can direct the police and the civil service in to do things under the rug if you like it um, it, it can say um in the specific case of gun laws, for instance, it was um, it wasn't. We're going to ban people from owning weapons for self-defense. It was don't. Issue, it was you're not going to issue licenses to people who want to own a weapon for self-defense anymore. They can still apply, just don't issue it. Don't issue them under any circumstances. And there's there's a lot of that going on, but it happens more slowly. It doesn't. It's not. It's not a case of somebody saying. You can't. You can't be right wing anymore, as it almost. Almost was in the states. It's more of a it's more of a sort of slow creeping adv- advance over
0: time yeah, through some is, some very heavy handed it, regulation. It seemed. I mean, uh, in one of your articles, you um, you referenced the, the Town and Country Planning Act of nineteen
2: forty
0: seven, which I think is is it's just it's probably representative of many other things like that. I'm not sure. You know, the uh, the, the gun regulation was at the same time, but it's in the same spirit where it's it's in the
1: same spirit yes it's in the same spirit i think they were much more subtle with with some things than they were with others so the the context of the planning act is um immediately after the second world war we elected a labor government that was very socialist in a traditional classical sense um and they decided that they were going to essentially nationalize a lot of different things Um, they created the national health service most famously now Uh, But they also, the Town and Country Planning Act was really an attempt to nationalize the development of property and the development of land. Um, The interesting thing is that the program didn't take off because that government didn't last very long. So we, another thing that we have here, which you don't really see in America is big, you used to see, you don't see it so much anymore because every, most politicians are ideologically aligned. You used to see big swings in central policy from left to right, and it was generally it was generally agreed immediately after the war that there weren't enough houses, a lot of them had been destroyed by bombing um in many cases, slum clearances hadn't been completed and were delayed substantially by substantially by the war um, but there was a disagreement as to how people were going to get them, how they were going to be built, so you would see. Big ideological swings between the conservatives and labor over we're going to do this all through the government or we're going to try and do this all through private. And eventually the conservatives started doing it through um, public means as well because it was the only way that they could ensure that it would happen quickly enough in their eyes at the time, I suppose. But things like the Planning Act are a bit, dif- are a bit different because they were attempts to institute that sort of cultural revolution project that didn't really work. They 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 sort of advanced the needle a little bit, but they weren't complete coup, coups in the same way that um, the New Deal was a complete coup. I mean, my knowledge of that period of American history is probably not as good as it should be, but it seems to have been a much more complete and triumphalist
2: victory for
1: for the party that won than we ever saw here until very recently
0: yeah but it does build up I feel like there's kind of a compounding effect just because of the yeah the fact that it's very subtle it's happening in the shadows and then just one day you just wake up and you wake up in a completely different place and you have no idea how you got there
1: yeah and I think that I think that's definitely true. And I think that it's something that's taken the very anemic forces of small C conservative conservatism in this country completely by surprise. Um, We, I don't think that anybody was really ready for it or expecting it to happen. There's there's always been a sort of, a can't, it can't happen here attitude. British people are fairly complacent creatures when it comes to when it comes to big big changes to things because i think we've evolved to be complacent to be honest we lived for a very long time in a very isolated corner of the world that was fairly safe and fairly boring and fairly prosperous and thus aren't really used to things being upset in a big way all the time yeah
0: that's uh that's a very uh succinct and very uh, very accurate description of, of most of the people that I, uh, I met in, in my time in Britain. Not to say that you know people in, in wider Europe are are very different. I feel like this is no. kind of a, also just an outgrowth of, of this this general prosperity. It really isn't you know people aren't feeling it bad enough to dis, you know to disturb their um, their, their peace.
1: Mm. Yeah. yeah and that's something that's been a common theme. Um, you've had you've spoken to Theodore Dalrymple before, and he has he has referenced that this is a comment that was being made as far back as the Victorian period when um, you know there were various different commissions on poverty and on public health um which would you know go out and sort of talk to talk to actual people in the working class in, in big industrial cities like London and Birmingham and Manchester and Liverpool. And get a sense of how they were living, and come back to Parliament, and Parliament would of course be outraged. And then you actually look at a map, and you see that half a mile up the street from Parliament, there is one of these slums. So you know, pe- you know, people were people were living right have been living right next door to a lot of this stuff all the time, but they are insulated from it, um, in a way that I don't think would really be possible in many other countries or possibly just didn't don't care about it enough because they are, as you said, too materially comfortable to notice it.
0: Yeah. And, and living in, in parallel with this is, to be honest, the, the way of the world everywhere else where there is a little bit of prosperity, not as much of mm-hmm. prosperity, but, if, you know, if you look at Brazil, Eastern Europe, you know, just, you know, the, the The big mass of the world, where there's some money but not a lot yeah. of money, this is how people live. They live in gated communities and then you know the masses live somewhere else. yeah, you, know, you see those crazy pictures of the favela right next to you know the uh, the estate, and yes. that is
1: just and that's where works. that's where we are. that's where we are going at the moment. I think I think everybody who has a brain can realize that that is what that is where we are going at the moment. It's not quite so far along here as it is in some parts of the states, but that's that is where we're going to end up. And the government here is very cheerfully in the business of subsidizing this. Yes, uh, the, the
0: the newest statistic from the from the UK that has uh, kind of uh, alarmed me is the six point eight million expenditure for refugees to or asylum seekers they're called in the UK yep. uh, to be uh, staying at hotels per day. Yes, which amounts that's, to 2.5 um, billion a year. That's
1: that's correct, yes. It's
0: um it's a, an interesting number, a very round number, a very staggering number. Uh, what what is going on with this industry because this is obviously a whole industry that has popped up overnight.
1: Okay, so everybody knows that the UK has a problem with small boats as they're euphemistically called in our media. They're actually they're actually sort of inflatable dinghies for the most part bringing people from usually from france over the channel where they will arrive in they'll arrive on the shores and prop and pretty much all of them will be picked up by the customs and border agency or another official body because it's it's fairly easy to spot craft in the channel that shouldn't be there in many cases our lifeboat trust Will actually pick them up as well. They'll dispatch a lifeboat who will pick these people up. It's been um, heavily propagandized in the media. You'll see pictures of dr- you'll see pictures of drowned children being displayed in newspapers here. We ha- we have seen this in the past. You'll occasionally hear stories about people's craft capsizing and with people on board dying. What? most people i think in britain probably aren't aware of is there's there's an infrastructure that has emerged behind this from a network of different non-profit organizations i won't call them charities because that gives a false impression of what they are when you say charity people think a soup kitchen or they think a homeless shelter although even homeless shelters have sort of become these horrible industrialized things in this day and age but there's a network of charities and even in in some cases directly working with government departments, who are lobbying for these people to be picked up and housed here. There's a sense that everybody who comes... This is is something that British people do a lot, actually. Um, There has to be a good reason for this, right? If people are coming over here in small boats, it can't possibly be because they think that there's a way to make a quick buck by doing so. They think that they can get something that they can't get through the legal, wh- through the legal channels. They're, you know, it has to be for a good reason. They have to be fleeing a war. And we see something like this. They have to be fleeing horrible conditions. Even in the case of Albanians in the present moment, you know, we're getting, we have something like 2% of all adult Albanian males are currently living in the UK. And people, a lot of people, you will talk to people in Britain about this issue, and they will say, oh, well, they're fleeing a war over there. Not, it's, not, it's simply not true at all. People, people are just making up these just-so stories in their heads in order to justify something which is completely unjustifiable. But anyway, we have a housing shortage in Britain. We've always had a housing shortage in Britain. It's a housing shortage which has been made substantially worse by the fact that we keep importing several hundred thousand people net every year because those people have to live somewhere. And if there's already a relatively tight housing supply, it's going to get tighter when you add more people. So we don't have anywhere to put these people. Local authorities are strapped for housing as it is for a whole bunch of different reasons for public publicly funded social housing. So they end up being put in hotels because there really isn't anywhere else for them to go. And because many of the many of these nonprofits, um I won't name names for fear of being sued into oblivion for libel at some point in the future, they will propagandize that the government is being somehow cruel or inhumane or mean to these people, it's very difficult to deport them because the local interpretation of the rulings of the European Court of Human Rights and of our own Human Rights Act is such that many, in many cases the courts will overrule deportation orders. So we have a problem with thousands of people coming here legally or illegally in many cases illegally being put in hotels essentially as a warehousing solution and there isn't the other thing that people will say is well we have we have a labor shortage we have a skill shortage and we don't there's something we can talk about later but we don't it's a complete lie so these people will come over here and they'll easily be able to find jobs a lot of them don't find jobs and on top of that 6.8 million pounds a day that's being used to house them. They also get um, a sort of allowance from the government for their, to cover their own expenses. And you then end up with this situation where people think, that, people think that this is small numbers of people and it doesn't really cost us that much. We're a rich country. We can afford it. We can absorb it. And we, we really can't. Um, we don't need to go too deep into the numbers for, into the numbers for this, but there's, there's no way that this is a sustainable expenditure forever especially since it keeps getting bigger
0: yeah and and especially because it um it trickles down into pretty much the collapse of public services i mean oh yes five years ago they were pretty much on the brink of collapse i can imagine an extra five years of the same thing uh hasn't improved things
1: the thing that's um that's really surprising about this is it's a simple it's a fairly simple equation um, and you've you have spoken to um, Simon from History Debunked, I think, and he's he's a person who has who has been highlighting this for much longer than I have. If you import millions, and it is millions of people, into the country, and the country's system of public services has been Orchestrated and calibrated for a specific number of people and specific ratios of staff to constituents, you can't expect those public services to function for very long. It's most obvious and most pronounced in the NHS, and I know he's talked about this, and a few other people have talked about it as well. But there are there are some NHS hospitals where imported doctors and nurses are treating are uh, uh, treating a patient population which is entirely foreign in origin so we are importing doctors and nurses to treat people that we have imported and there's too many of them so we're going to have to import some more doctors and nurses to treat them and this this is a sort of perpetual motion machine for um a, it's a it, it's a
2: what what's the word i'm looking for sorry it's sort of a, it's it's sort of a self. Um,
1: sorry, I'm struggling to find the correct metaphor for this, and I don't think that there's a metaphor for this that I can use that's yeah, actually know, politically correct enough to be put on YouTube. Yeah. Right?
0: Are you trying to uh, to um, find a, a euphemism for the cycle? Uh, that... Yes. We, okay. We, know, yeah, what, we know the
1: cycle we're talking about. But we can refer yes, to it by name. Indeed. <laughs>
0: um, Yes. So yeah, exactly. The cycle is
1: a big business in the UK. Yeah, that's exactly. the, that's the UK's variant of it. Um, but this puts a huge strain on every part of the system. It puts a huge strain on the employment market. It puts a huge strain on our um, on our holy NHS. It puts a huge strain on the police. It puts a huge it puts a huge strain on everything. And the most amazing thing about it is that the State media, because we do it, the BBC here is state media, even if it pretends not to be. The newspapers, every economist who works for the government, most of the economists who don't work for the government, every university academic and a lot of these charities have all managed to coordinate, to try and convince the British public that this is some sort of magical Set of problems that has no easy solution when it's pretty obvious to anybody who can operate a calculator Mm -hmm. that the main root of the problem is that we're importing 300,000 people a year net. It's more like a million at this point. That's the size of a small city or a large city if we look at the gross numbers. And we don't have the ability, even if we wanted to, to build infrastructure that would be able to absorb that many people.
0: Yeah, that's it's a very basic math. Um, but yeah, like you said, there are layers upon layers of, of obfuscation. And when you talk about the NHS, the only thing that comes up is that, but the, uh, you know, the doctors, they're, they're foreign. What would we do without the foreign doctors? The NHS would collapse. Um, and that is the only argument I've ever heard. Um it's it seems like you know, almost like a, a killer argument. You know, what would you do? Um I mean it has a
1: very, it has a very simple answer. Um the General Medical Council has complete discretion over the number of doctors that are trained in the UK. Um and it doesn't it doesn't allow very many of them to be trained. That so we have um we have a system in which the government will restrict supply and that And for a number of different reasons, I'm sure that the GMC gets a kick out of this situation because it it gives them a great deal of control over something. It, It gives them something to do. But it also allows a number of different organizations to not have to absorb the cost of training anybody. So if we can if we can train, I'm not sure if these are the exact numbers, these are ballpark. If We can train six to eight thousand doctors a year. That comes with a lot of different costs attached. If we can import them pre-trained from other countries at a rate of 10 to 15 thousand a year, we'll do that. Instead, it's cheaper.
0: Yeah. And a a, a lot of Romania, I mean, Romania has a a shortage of doctors and a lot of doctors are leaving for the UK, for France because of this. Um, But what's maybe many people in the uk don't know is that the um the degree that you get here in romania is not necessarily equivalent with the one that you get you know in, in the uk you know just training a doctor is not some universal standard that you can apply to anyone uh, romania essentially a, a big business here is that you sell Um, medical diplomas to people who can barely speak English coming in from the third world. So you have a lot of foreign students coming in, you know, from North Africa, from Asia, from Africa, like uh, to, um, yeah, to essentially become doctors and then immigrate further into, into, um, into Europe. Not saying that, you know, some, some aren't great, you know, they're, they're, you know, equivalent to, uh, UK standards, but that the standards for them to pass through medical school, um, they're not a filter; they're essentially a rubber stamp. Um, and then these people end up being the you know much coveted uh, doctors that you know you you see in, in the West. You know, in, in a way, <laughs> for us, it's it's the same. The, these people don't want to they don't want to stay here. Maybe one in a hundred remains a doctor in Romania, and the rest go go further into Europe. Uh, but so do our doctors. You know the the medium to better ones all go to work in Europe because, you know, they can make a, a bit more money, um, a bit more, not yeah, that much it's more.
1: A, it's a similar, a similar sort of thing happens at all levels. And with populations across the world coming here, I mean, I think it, this is a historical figure at one point shortly after the second world war, the, something like 90% of the working age male population of one particular part of hong kong decamped en masse to the uk um and we it would be sort of it would be a bit getting into the weeds i think to go into the the effects that this kind of migration can have on the countries where people are coming from um but when it comes to the uk what it what it results in and what it has resulted in is um, a sustained period of underinvestment in fundamental research and development in infrastructure spending and in the training of the native workforce it's very rare f- to find companies in the uk that will actually train people to do anything these days what there have been many different attempts to by many different governments to address this issue one of the more one of the more popular talking points for politicians here is the subject of apprenticeships. Um, these are this is a, it's a, a pretty classic thing in our country for politicians to talk about something that sounds like it's a very attractive proposition. Oh well, you know we'll we'll um, apprentice a bunch of people and they'll they'll learn trades and they'll be able you know we'll upskill the workforce. Blah 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 blah. What always happens is your apprentice will end up being a recent immigrant who's being paid less than minimum wage. So it, it, all of these reforms are being, are being exploited to allow companies to pay people less, which displaces the native workforce and forces them to upskill into whatever you know, avenue they can find in order to find work or simply to be left behind As is often the case in many places, um, which in turn increases uh, the supply of labour at the higher levels of of skill and training relative to demand in terms of jobs. And everybody on the everybody on the supply side loves this, I'm sure, because it means that they have the ability to pick and choose who they hire, and they can do it at a greatly reduced cost. It's quite remarkable how little even a very highly qualified person makes in the uk our our doctors and our lawyers don't make that much internationally in in terms of international national comparisons and especially in terms of what they could earn in the u.s and i posted a, a, a sort of miniature Expletive-laden rant on this a while ago, where I said, I don't understand why we keep talking about how the UK needs to attract top talent. Nobody in their right mind would actually come here if they were internationally talented, because we don't have much to offer them
0: there is something it's essentially running on fumes um yeah you know there at least in tech and things like that you know there's you know there's a still there's a lot of ruin in a nation and there's a lot of ruin in an empire and there's still you know a lot of ruin left in london especially in terms of you know very qualified you know tech finance type stuff uh, but <laughs> the substrates being you know Eaten away by termites, you know, insane speed. So it's not uh, it's not going to last forever. But yeah, there's there's something, especially people who want to stay in Europe, don't want to go to America.
1: I think that that is probably a big a big part of it is that we still have a residual image of ourselves as a powerful, prosperous country. Um, And there's also this gets mixed in with the mixed in with the cultural elements that we grew to survive the second world war this, this idea that you shouldn't complain um and that you should be you should be eternally grateful for what you have which was a val- a sort of valid concern when your house could be destroyed in a bombing raid at any point um and food was in genuinely short supply as it was in this country until the middle of the 1950s we were still rationing food in the middle of the 1950s 10 years after the war ended so I've, I th- we have We have this sort of residual imperial image of ourselves as a very prosperous culturally influential politically influential country we have on top of that substrate the idea that we mustn't grumble shouldn't complain stiff up a lip um we've all got to do our bit um and those those two things together sort of combine to so give us this impression that we have an infinite supply of money that's never going to run out and that we are that everybody's looking at us you know this is this is this is sort of um another de, another delusion especially that our political class likes to in, indulge themselves in that if we do or do not do the current thing correctly we will be the laughing the laughing stock of europe or the laughing stock of Eurasia, the laughing stock of the world, the laughing stock of the solar system, and I don't think that anybody's actually paying that much attention, chaps. I don't think we're that important, and I don't think we're that influential anymore. But we still haven't managed to recalibrate us, our internal self-image, to reflect that. Yeah,
0: and the sad thing is that you know Britain could be that
1: important. Um, oh it could uh, we've got the the ingredients this is the really maddening thing for a lot of us. The ingredients are all there there is there is actually quite a lot of money sloshing around that could be put to, to good use. We how much we, we have a GDP I think it's just over two trillion pounds and about half of that is government expenditures. Most of it's not going to anything particularly useful. Most of it's going to things that will not encourage growth so it's going to it's going to things like the nhs which in its present form cannot be a catalyst for growth of any kind it's going into pensions and entitlements of various different kinds what it's not going into is building new sources of energy production it's not going into fundamental infrastructure it's not going to road and rail to any great extent and every time we do try to build something, somebody complains that it will disrupt their view of a barren, featureless heath. And the project is promptly cancelled because God forbid that we inconvenience somebody who's going to be dead in 10 years in order to build something that will keep us going for the next 150 years.
0: Yeah, it's... Uh... Part of all part of the uh, town and country planning <laughs> act, as far as I exist. yes, and
1: the, the one the thing that I've not actually se- said much about on that score, which I probably should mention, is that doesn't just restrict housing to the point of insanity. It also, rest- especially in the in a country whose population is growing very very rapidly, if if you even if you accepted that immigration is a universal good. And this is this is the sort of weird position that the the British um, Yimby, yes, in my backyard sect have gotten to is we need to build a lot more houses, because if we don't, we won't be able to accommodate as many immigrants. And that would be a bad thing because immigration is always good all the time forever. Um, So they've got at least some people have managed to get that far. But the uh, Town and Country Planning Act also massively um, stifles businesses. And it massively stifles innovation because um, what will often happen in planning considerations is somebody will say, I want to convert this house into a shop, for instance, if it's not already got that usage. Or I want to buy this building and knock it over and put in a purpose built facility to do X, Y, Z to that. Somebody is always going to come along and complain. It will change the character of the neighborhood. It will change the character of the town. It will change the character of the str- of the streets. Um, or more perniciously, oh, we don't need another one of those. We've already got one. Okay, so how, how are you supposed to have a competitive marketplace in an environment where you won't allow somebody to open a business because another business that doesn't broadly the same thing is already there?
0: Yeah, this is the kind of the the tendrils of the of the longhouse coming yes. in and <laughs> yeah, the, suffocating it's, <laughs> everything yeah i mean it's 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 a it's a, it's a, an insane problem and um it's it's also kind of led to this weird standardization of everything where you can you know no one wants you to build anything a little bit you know out there and if there is um if there is something a little bit out there it's completely probably illegal to build because just the the, the level of um, of, of security and um, safety regulation and all of this type of stuff that exists in the UK. We have that here and we have more and more of it from, from the EU. But you know, my, my, my husband, he's, he's a builder. He used to be a builder when he was growing up and he mm. used to build houses in New Zealand, which is very much equivalent to what's going on in the UK, pretty yeah. much the same stuff. Um, and they also have kind of the added layer that it's a seismic zones so or the level of security stuff that you have to do for houses there is, is insane. He's just, you know, just walking along the street here, him looking at construction and, you know, just, just urban planning and stuff around here. He's uh, he's just, he's not very happy. He says all of these buildings would would be highly illegal. They wouldn't even, you know, get off the ground. They wouldn't get any permission. You know, it's, it's just the fact that, um, you know, when I asked him, like I showed him kind of like the type of house that, you know, I would be thinking of buildings a bit more in, in a traditional, maybe a little bit pastiche style. He'd be like, you know, this looks really good. But if you have like a a concrete cube, then you'd be extremely perfectly safe, and then you wouldn't have uh, you know problems with with water infiltration. You wouldn't have you know mold stuff. And it it really does seem that everything's kind of you know the the carcinization of homes is to toward the Dino box that you highlight in your in your oh, yes. uh, the uh, lovely, article.
1: The lovely Dino box, um, yeah. which is it's 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 sort of um it's basically the lowest common denominator that you can get away with in terms of regulation, exactly exactly as you're saying. It's something that nobody is going to be too upset about. They tend to be built only on the edges of towns. Um, somebody once made the observation, can't remember who, somebody once made the observation that Dino, who is a, a sort of popular stock character on the internet in the UK, gets, you think sort of like... Um, upper working class um generally does quite well for himself cheerful guy dino always lives five minutes away from a motorway because that's the only place that anybody will build houses anymore they're always built on these weird strips of marginal land on the very edge of towns they're not very well connected to anything else which is um Ridiculous, almost to the point of farce, when one considers that we are also being told we need to abandon our cars and embrace the walkable community, which is a a horrible a horrible sort of imposition from from America. All of our cities are pretty much perfectly walkable. I mean, you've, you've lived in London, you know you know this. It's not a non walkable place.
0: No, it's it's very walkable, and I just I just kind of realized that uh, I, I actually did used to live in a Dino box because it perfectly fits all the, all the parameters you're describing. It was yep. just on the edge of Hackney, uh, close yep. to the marshes, on a, like a little strip of land, you know, um, not connected to anything. Luckily, I was biking everywhere, so it I kind Didn't of... Really matter, you know, doesn't really matter yeah. in that
1: case. But these places, these places are completely de- dependent on cars because they're usually built nowhere near any actual infrastructure so you know you don't only get dino box development you get the little developments of dino support industries which are analogous to an american strip mall i suppose um that also tend to exist on the edges of towns and usually have the same five big chain shops in them because there's no competition here because nobody can Nobody can really. Nobody other than the biggest companies.
0: Course, yeah, the poor of, co-op in the yeah. behind my building, man. There's so much, so much shoplifting. Like there was yeah. a Polish manager who was just crying, telling us about what he has to deal with every day.
1: Like an t- interesting. There's an interesting little side story about shoplifting in the in the UK. Um, um, if we want to talk about blob organelles, the Crown Prosecution Service, the CPS, was is sort of like a central central clearinghouse in the UK for criminal prosecution. If you like. if you are being charged with something, it's it's because they have decided to charge you with it and take it to court on behalf of the state. This was created in part because um, smaller offences used to be prosecuted by police forces, so they would have lawyers on staff whose job it was to take cases to lower courts, magistrates' courts, for the police and in some cases, higher courts as well. In the case of shoplifting, in the 1980s, police forces basically just decided they weren't going to bother prosecuting them anymore. And this is why you, you still see signs in the UK that say shoplifters will be prosecuted. You know, that That's a relic from a time when big supermarket chains and department stores actually employed teams of solicitors to lodge private prosecutions against shoplifters because the state refused to do it. So in theory, the CPS was created to deal with this, but now it's mostly created. Its its main task is ensuring that most criminals aren't prosecuted. You
2: know, yeah, that's that's
1: the that's the sort of thing that happens here. We we create new organisations with the stated aim of doing something, but then do the opposite of those things.
0: Of course, because you know you're you're compounding the uh, the oppression of the criminal, the inherent oppression of the criminal. If you're actually doing oh, something yes. against his criminality, um, you know you can't have that. Um, it's it's interesting though that you know the, the the shops have tried to impose a private. Um, a private system to, to, to sort that out?
1: They tried to a long time ago. It would be very difficult for them to do that these days because bringing a private prosecution in the UK is now very, very hard indeed. Um, even If the Crown Prosecution Service decides that they don't want to prosecute someone, that's basically it. An enterprising citizen hungry for justice can apply apply for the right to have a private prosecution, but it doesn't always necessarily have to be granted. And even if it is, the Crown Prosecution Service reserves essentially the ability to take over the case at any time. And it has happened that a person will bring a private prosecution against an individual. The Crown Prosecution Service will then adopt the case
2: purely so that they can discontinue it yeah so it
1: it is it is essentially the game is called you lose essentially and that's the case in, in many parts of um british life when one has to interact with the state the game is you lose and the only winning move is to emigrate
0: yeah, that's it's really interesting because I I don't know if you've listened to there's a recently a stream, very good stream um, um by Academic Agent where uh Bronze Age Perwood was was invited and he made the point that um the only kind of sensible move uh for the the modern citizen is to be kind of a a, a permanent emigre, to be a, an expat in a in, in other countries because for most um regimes in the world today the exploitation of the productive class is the is the game it's you know you if you're you're there to be to be stripped and and you know just to to, to have the marrow sucked out of you um but if you're an expat you know governments generally don't really care they're not you know they're not going to exploit you too much because you just don't show up as uh like the citizenry. And I thought that was um It's an interest I've not true. heard
1: that one and it's an it's an interesting point. And I I'll have to properly listen to it so that I can actually formulate an opinion on it because it's always a bad idea to disagree with um Bronze Age perverts <laughs> in any capacity I've found. But um the um the the rejoinder to that I suppose would be yes, but there's not that many of you yet when twenty five percent of the productive population has decided to become an expatriate, what do you think happens then yeah i mean i mean i I don't know if I, you'll probably start to see, depending on conditions on the ground if that if we get to the point where everybody in the fifteen percent of the population that's actually productive is looking to go abroad or has already gone abroad, you'll probably start seeing governments cooperate to ensure that they can collect what they think is due to them.
0: Yeah, they, they are starting to do this across Europe because there's been a huge moves, obviously, During COVID, you know, people are trying to, um, there are concerted efforts. And I think a lot of the, you know, social credit score type movements, you know, tagging you uh, digitally uh, tie into this uh, idea that, you know, you're now a a fungible, um, you know, fungible (laughs) producer for the empire.
1: We get close to talking about the World Economic Forum and other such such. Terribly low status things when we, we talk about this. and I, I think my perspective on this has always been it isn't, it isn't an attempt, a sort of triumphalist attempt to create a global state. It's a desperate attempt to stave off collapse by people whose ideas have already failed. If the productive portion of your company um, of your country, sorry, is fleeing to other countries because conditions are so terrible for them at home. You have not succeeded as a state. If you have to collaborate with other governments in order to tax the only citizens in your country that can actually produce revenue, you failed. And so have they. So it's, the question is, how long, can this, how long can this sustain itself for? And the answer is probably a, a very an uncomfortably long time for those of us currently alive.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, coming back to Bap's point, you know, he's um I think it's it's most optimal way to defect. That's what he's describing. when mm. uh, in, yeah. in a place where the equilibrium is obviously defect defect um this is a an optimal, you know, personally optimal way to defect at the moment under given conditions. And you know, uh, yes. yeah, granted. Um obviously if if you are someone who has ties to a culture a region, maybe an empire you might have other reasons to not defect and to try to you know form coalitions together with others who who are similarly inclined but um, I can see how if you're if you're not really you know
1: if you don't think like that then
0: yeah this is this is a good idea
1: if you're an unattached person, it probably does make sense at the moment. I think if you have any real sense of attachment a uh, uh, lots of people will obviously balk at the idea because as, as well as that, you know, their own, their own personal attachments, which are the, theirs. And, you know, only they can sort of like assess whether those mean enough to them to, you know, act upon is it's so emigrate is also essentially an admission of defeat. Um, it's an, it's an admission that you can't win at this game and that, um, that you are, you are sort of fleeing tail between your legs, even if you can build a better life for yourself. By doing so, I mean, this Britain is a country that has a a very long history of sending uh, permanently estranging itself from its own population, because we've always been one of the most overpopulated parts of Europe. We've always been one of the most densely England, at least has always been one of the most densely populated countries on Earth. And for those of for future commenters saying, well, what do you mean by always? I mean, for the past 250 years, maybe 300 years, we've always had a very high population and our way of dealing with it has been descended abroad either to, either to set up colonies or simply to be absorbed in other countries. Um, I think we've been a net exporter of population for the past two centuries, or most of the past two centuries, with a, a short blip recently, although that does seem to be correcting itself. But I don't think many of the people who do that necessarily want to do it. They do it because they feel like they have no choice and it is it's quite a demoralizing thing to have to consider yeah,
0: yeah, I think it's um it's kind of uh brings. Fourth, like that there's a there's a current discussion kind of between the, the the bigger factions and and the so-called dissident right you know i mean the easiest way to describe this is say you know the the wife guys versus the vitalist <laughs> something you know i've seen yeah. i've seen this happening and i to be honest i mean I, I do have a horse in this fight i am a wife you know i guess i'm married to a wife guy he wouldn't have been married to me if he wasn't i guess i don't know exactly how to describe the, the typology
1: i think the way to i think that the best the sort of st- like the, the way that I've been thinking about it is, um, the what I'm sure your husband isn't a wife guy because a, a wife guy, in, in, the, in the sense that is being mocked at the moment, is somebody who is, is a man whose ambitions are so uh, lacking that he defaults to the nearest strong opinion in, you know, in his personal universe, which is almost always going to be his wife.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that that makes that makes sense to me. So it's essentially uh, kind of an archetype of a man who constructs his whole life around this ideal of domesticity with the wife at the center, and she, you know, inevitably ends up dictating his life. Yes. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. No. I definitely. No. That's not. It's
1: the it's the long house, but on the level of the nuclear family, mm-hmm. if you like. Yeah. Um, and I think there's plenty of there's plenty of people who are married with children who don't fit into this. Um, I mean, there's plenty of there's plenty of people living in small communities doing blue collar working class jobs who don't act like this. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I can I can I can see why, you know, this is uh This is an interesting thing to aspire to just because it's relatively outside of the norm, or at least outside of what is high status at the moment. It's not very high status to be, you know, maybe working, um, you know, whatever, blue collar jobs and and having children and, you know, not, um, but, and I can see how this can become its own deity and its own thing to worship and how men can be attracted to this because it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, but it, yeah, and how it does put women at the center of it, because that's where the babies come from. And that's kind of what's going on in the household. Uh, but at the same time, there is there is a whole world of of male, um, just a, the domain of maleness that doesn't really have anything to do with this. And if people don't really, don't cultivate that and don't maintain that for themselves outside of that, they can very easily be swallowed up by by domesticity. Uh, and destroy their families in the process because it, that just consumes polarity like nothing else. You know, you, you really, you if you're the you know person in the center of the household, you know, what's there left to do for your wife? You know, it's, it's just there's there's a whole lot of things here that I feel like people are um, ignoring. So yeah, I, I think I you've you've created a bit more clarity for me.
1: I think <laughs> but, it's it, it is an intre- it's an interesting one, and I can t- I, I can sort of totally see where you know the, the impulse comes the impulse is coming from a very clear place as far as i'm concerned the problem the problem with it is it's a similar problem to to the one that some of the trads create for themselves uh, it's not a word that i particularly like using and i don't want to target anyone in particular but it, it's something that um it's something that a lot of tradcath types get themselves tied in knots over as well they're trying to they're trying to Finger quotes return to tradition, but they don't actually understand what that tradition, you know, where that tradition was centered and what was driving it. So they end up essentially LARPing to some degree as somebody they they end up LARPing as an Amish, more or less. And they're always going to be better at being Amish than you are. They're all and they're doing it for a completely different set of reasons from the reasons that you think you are doing it um and this is this is i think something that happens only in a society where people have completely lost their way and don't really you know they're just taking stabs in the dark a lot of these people would describe themselves as traditional christian but in terms of their attitude and outlook they're essentially pagan they're very superstitious
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a strange, um, strange new world, like patchwork of, of, um, of essentially, like you said, you know, pagan deities, you know, idols that people worship because they are aesthetically appealing, but there's something in that aesthetic appeal. Um, you know, there's something encoded in it, which is not the actual thing that these people are worshiping, but there is something that's attractive and, um, you know i I think you know the larp sometimes is worth it. I feel like I've seen quite a lot of people larp themselves into some some decent lifestyles um just because it was just so aesthetically enticing and it yeah they came out the other side
1: if there is if there is aesthetic appeal in something, there's probably something to be said for it that's good the The problem co- comes when that becomes the when the when I suppose the fetish of the thing overtakes
2: the thing
0: itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, I think the problem is just, uh, the, the medium, you know, it's, the it's the internet. It really does reward the fetishizing rather than, you know, there's no points for actually, you know, being a good husband or, you know, living, um, off the grid or whatever is, is high status in these communities, but there are points in the, in the fetishization of it. If you
1: are actually living off the grid, you're not on the internet.
2: Yeah, that's, probably. that's
1: always been the, the central contradiction of, of a lot of that stuff, of that stuff for me. But as it, as it relates to what we were originally talking about, as it relates to, um, what were we talking about? We were talking about um the split between the wife guy side and the,
0: to uh, i guess vitalism i don't
1: know um yes Nietzschean. I mean, yes poster. I, I, yeah i mean i've always sort of been of the opinion that the you know the the conflict such as it is you know it is real but it's m- much less important than many people think it is and i do I, I agree with that that you know you can't make getting married and having children a political act it's not enough in and of itself to Sustain any kind of functioning culture.
0: Yeah, I think the the maybe the pushback here is that if if there's no, because the reality is for a lot of people, many people, uh, even on our side, there just doesn't feel like there is enough of a reason to be having children. And I feel like with enough iterations of generations who think like this, um, you know, you'll you have demographic. you already have demographic collapse um so if you know whatever memeplex uh pushes people to actually engage in this stuff if it means worshiping it you know if that's the the way you get to having children um you know in the in the grand scheme of things i think it's it's useful you know if you end up having 4 kids because you're larping um and if you wouldn't have been larping you would have had exactly 0 then just in the you know the grand scheme of things you know larp accomplished, success, <laughs> just because there is another game opening up to be played in the second iteration. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid that if, you know, uh, if, if people belittle this type of thinking too much and it's like, oh, you know, you don't, we don't want to, you know, don't want to participate in the longhouse. You don't want to be, you know, you don't want to necessarily engage with women <laughs> at, at that level or whatever. It's not important. Uh, that. A lot of people who might have existed might just miss the boat, and a lot of people who are more inclined towards my politics might miss the boat. Uh, so um, I don't know. Just just from this reason, uh, I think it might be useful to not be too negative on the wife guys. You know, uh, you know, it's, it it might be aspirational still to to want to have you know the family and the kids, even if it's not the center of your existence.
1: You are absolutely correct. I think that it is aspirational for ma- for many people to actually just so simply have a family and kids and it's an it's a testament to the extent to which the culture has failed i suppose the species has failed that that is an aspiration that is something that a hundred years ago was just a sort of assumed thing that would happen to you you would grow up and you would probably get married and you would probably have some children the fact that that isn't the case anymore suggests that something has gone horribly wrong when larps succeed I th- suspect it is probably because those laps actually accurately reflect the inner content of a person, if that makes sense, yeah,
0: so they they move from. Being, um, they—they're just kind of imitative rather than than larping. Yeah. It just becomes a uh, almost like praying the rosary and waking up a Christian. You know, you you start with the ritual and then you you materialize into into the actual thing. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's that happens to people. Does it happen to most people engaging in this stuff? Probably not, because there's probably, a lot of. I
1: probably don't. I don't think so, because if they if it was gonna work for them, they would probably. I mean, this is it's kind of uh, circular argument, but if it was going to work, it probably already would have happened by now. If you are having to force yourself to do, to do this stuff, if it's not something that draws you to it naturally, it's probably not, it's probably not something you should be doing.
0: Yeah. I think, I think there's also the fact that, you know, it's, uh, there, there's a certain natural component, but like just the, 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 the status components, the, the stuff that's rewarded, everything else that comes from the culture tells you that this is a bad idea for, for most, you know. And then you find the subculture that actually sees this stuff as high status. And then you're like, okay, now my natural inclination is aligned with this group. And it really does make, it makes it attractive for you to be um, participating in this culture because they, they're already kind of giving you whatever, brownie points for the stuff that you already are inclined to do. Uh, but for a lot of people, you know, just to, the idea of the the cost, the fact that you can't travel or whatever, you know, it's just uh, thousands of reasons for not having children. It's it's a hassle, you know, at, at the very least, it's a hassle having children. And if there's not, you know, if there's no societal sweeteners, like there used to be in history where you were a spinster and, uh, you know, ostracized by the village if you, if you didn't have children, that's a sweetener in, in its own way um it's it's tough sometimes to 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 get in that mindset because i know there there are i would say maybe a minority of women who are just so maternally inclined that they can't even imagine their life without children but then there're also a lot of women you know and men who are you know just um, they're aligned with whatever society and status tells them is important to be going after. You know, there's so many women who are just agreeable. They're like, okay, you need to go to whatever dental hygienist school and spend whatever ten years polishing teeth, or you know, whoever tells them what to, to think, they're going to do that. And um, yeah, it's um, it's 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 pretty much that for a lot of people. And um, yeah, I mean, I i think it's it's heartening that there are subcultures like that, like I said, not necessarily the most effective, but it's not the worst thing that you could be worshiping
1: um it probably isn't the worst thing it probably isn't the worst thing that you could be worshiping the pro- The problem comes I think, when it tries to be or it tries to position itself as the one the one way the one trick that will save yeah. western civilization reptilians hate him, you know <laughs> sort of thing true um. And that's, that's where things start to become a little bit tiresome when these people go after people like BAP or people that um, BAP associates himself Yeah, with. I wish they uh, had better... It's not, hel- it's not helpful to them. It doesn't help build their case because they end up looking like morons. Yeah, I, I wish they had w- better w-
0: representatives, <laughs> man, because the only thing they do is keep calling him gay, which is gay, very gay in itself. Just like, there's no substantive argument it doesn't make
1: it doesn't make a great deal of sense because you come you come at this from like two different perspectives if you're liberal and you call somebody gay well you think that that's good you know you should love that if you think that this guy's gay that's great you know that's great he's on your side you know and if you come from it from the if you come from it from the other side it doesn't really get you anywhere because if if people were gonna have a problem if, if people were gonna have a problem with that, they wouldn't have listened, they would, you know, they would have stopped listening to him the first time that somebody set, somebody accused him of being gay. Yeah. It doesn't, it does, it, it's not an accusation that makes any kind that makes any kind of sense. It's not like somebody's somebody who's been reading everything that he said for the past ten years is gonna see you say that and go, Oh my god, I never you know, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna ignore everything he says from now on, you know? It just it doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, I, I just wish they, you know, I, like I said, I'm partial to their worldview, but I wish they had better representatives. Anyway, uh, we're, we're coming up on time. I want to ask you the final question, which is a question of the show. Everyone gets this question. It's, um, do you have a uh, subversive thinker, someone that you could recommend to our listeners that is, uh, you think, underrated, you know, people should check out?
2: None that you probably
1: haven't been told that you need to make yourself aware of before. That's fine. The, it's always
0: good to have some uh some reminders.
1: The person I mean the person that I'm reading the most at the moment is probably Pareto, who is probably in these circles at the moment, the most underappreciated one of the big three of the Italian elitist school. Um, but aside from that's the only person I can think of off the top of my head that's had particularly strong impression on me recently.
0: You've uh you've mentioned the book that I also I don't think I've mentioned this on on this podcast. Maybe I have, I don't remember, but you've you've had a thread on this and I want to point people towards that thread. It's the uh the moral basis of a backward society, and I think it's a yeah. very useful book. It's quite interesting, especially people coming from the West, because um, it's it's it rings very familiar familiar familial as well to me because I grew up in Eastern Europe and it's much more it's much closer to the Italian village than to um, central
1: London. It's inter- interesting that that's the case. I mean, one of the things that so yes, that's um, Banfield's the moral basis of a backward society. It's definitely worth a read. It's not very long. It's not particular. It's not particularly tough material. Um, And it would have been not too long ago, a seminal work of American sociology before sociology was replaced with, um, you you know, sort of a series of programs to funnel public funds to people who probably shouldn't be having public funds funneled to them. Um, The Yes, it's interesting. One of the one of the most common comments I got about that that one was, "Oh my God, this is basically just every society that isn't that isn't white." Um, this this is every country in Eastern Europe. This is every country in Africa. This is every country in Asia. Um, and I mean, quite possibly it is. I'm not sure if it's a helpful comment though, because until until pretty recently, we were doing that sort of thing to each other in the UK as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, defect defect is the essential quintessential equilibrium of the world. The fact that the West yes. escaped defect effect for like a you know a gasp of a second is 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 a miracle. But it is. We're back.
2: <laughs> it's well, yeah, well, back, back. back
1: back back to normal situations. And I think um the the things that create, I mean, I use throughout that when I use the term high trust, I think the, the, the difference between it's like essentially what you what Banfield is describing is a is a small society, a village-sized society, almost, in which there is no social capital whatsoever, in which there is no assumption that anybody else will want to help you do anything, or that it basically basically an idea, a, a society in which the idea of common purpose is almost absurd and I mean, you can speak to the, I mean, you can speak to the, your experience of this sort of situation in Eastern Europe. He attributes these conditions to a historically very high death rate, which sort of made the formation of extended families very difficult, if not impossible, to comparative poverty at all levels of society, even the even the wealthy and the upper class, with the exception of the of the sort of local feudal cesarean, um, are very poor don't don't have much to go around, and in which there's no real reason for anybody to expect anything to improve i mean I don't know if that reflects your experience.
0: Yeah, I think it's uh, what what he describes is quite, you know, almost like the the platonic ideal of zero trust. It's a very it's kind of a special insular case, but I feel like there's there's a bit of a spectrum between that as a kind of a perfect shitty situation and let's say, you know, whatever Sweden in the 1950s or like, I don't know exactly, you know, the, the most perfect high trust society you can imagine. Um most I think societies are somewhere in the middle. Most, uh, like some, somewhere like Romania, there is much more social capital. It is embedded within kind of a loose association of mafia-like entities, which are kind of extended families with blood ties, or even friendship. Tie. Friendship is really important, but it's, uh, it's it's a very tested institution here. Um, you know, gift giving, um, bribing is very is a is a big way to to build and consolidate this type of stuff. Um, there, there are, there's definitely much more social capital and, um, and it's expanding into institutions as well. Like institutions have gotten much more, they've developed much more into the direction of trust with the EU. I mean, as much as I, you know, can complain about the EU, I hate it in many ways, but it has been really useful in in Eastern Europe just because of the, the fact that, There is this strange entity with oversight that you can't really model. You don't know who's watching, when they're going to watch. They're giving you a lot of money. Uh, for structural funds, they're coming in to check on you. You know, there's an eye somewhere in the institutions from afar, and you know that if you're if you're stealing too much of this money, if you're, you know, they can get <laughs> you, and they can get you with institutions that you don't have any connections to. So they can get you with the European Human Rights Court. They can get you in, in in different ways. So it's been really good in that yeah, sense. I think you know? that
1: probably it probably mirrors the emergence of. High trust in other places, where I think you need a certain level of basic material prosperity. There has it has to be a situation where people don't aren't starving to death, um, aren't constantly dying all the time, um, either exactly. due to ba- bad material conditions or to um, or to wars.
0: Yeah, and it's you know the the, the material conditions also allow you to trade favors to bribe to you know there, there
2: yes, are some and people that's
1: the that's the thing about the place that banfield was t- was talking about was the reason it didn't develop or didn't get absorbed into any local mafia like networks is because it didn't have anything worth ex- there was nothing there to extort basically they was they were so poor they weren't even worth absorbing into a protection racket and couldn't establish that kind of network within their own community because there wasn't even any trust in within extended families. And I think it actually, it, he actually does have a chapter where he says that it's very rare for anybody in this community to actually have somebody that they would describe as a friend. Yeah. Um, because any, like any action that benefits another person or another person's family is automatically presumed to be to your personal detriment even if it has nothing to do with you so they were a person in this in a person in britain still of at least a native person in britain if you stop them and ask for directions they'd probably try to help you in banfield's um montegrano if you asked a person for directions, they'd either not give you any or they'd lie to you because there's that default assumption that you should be, that you shouldn't help somebody else because to help somebody else is to disadvantage yourself somehow, somehow or in some way at some unknown date in the future.
0: Yeah. To so empower think, your enemies.
1: Yes. So I think you have, you you have to have a certain basic level of material prosperity. um, And the, imposition of a, of a sort of neutral authority is an interesting one because I think in the in the countries where high trust did develop that that was coming top down from from um not necessarily the cent- central governments in the way that we would recognize them today, but it was coming top down from the agents of the crown in the uk at the very least. Yeah, where it was it was sort of like, I guess the the basic model of it was um, you can do whatever you like as long as you don't break the law. And if you break the law, you will be dealt with extremely harshly. Um, but the harsh law probably doesn't really help you if you don't have the material conditions which allow you to obey it. Um, some, So I can hear choruses of 1352, even as I say that. And the answer to that is yes, of course, but you're working with very different um, human hardware in those situations. There's lots of different things that play into it, but it is quite it is quite remarkable how easy it seems to be for conditions of high, social, high tr- social trust to just completely collapse. And we've seen that in the course of maybe two generations in the UK, which was probably one of the highest trust societies in the world. Um, in the middle of the twentieth century, and is now rapidly descending to the levels of Eastern Europe, and will probably meet you going in the other direction. Eventually.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's the un- unfortunate truth. I mean, that's kind of what I I saw as well. Um, yeah, on that on that cheery note, uh, <laughs> I wanna, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, this this podcast is known for. for deep black pills. Um, I'm not going to try to rectify that. Um, I I seek it out. I like it because people need to be informed. I should
1: probably (laughs) say after after that, that I find myself to be one of the most optimistic people in these, in these circles, especially when I talk to other people privately, I find, I find myself actually being one of the more cheerful in, in terms of thinking that, you know, there, there is a point obviously at which all of this stops working
0: yeah, I hope it's not two hundred years after we we're dead. <laughs>
1: but, oh, I, sus- uh, I suspect that. um I suspect that we will still be alive. Um That's that's my suspicion, but I suspect that we will probably be very very old.
0: Nice. I like the and fact that we're very very old, and you and you're. We get to be <laughs> very very old, and you're. Well, an that's example. The, you know, that's
1: that's the sort of, the sort of win condition is that you get you get to see a better world before. You have to leave it. Yeah,
0: I like that. Yeah, on on that actually, cheery note. Um, I want to thank you for coming on. This has been uh, lovely. Thank uh, you
1: for w- having me. I hope you are able to edit something coherent out no, of all of that.
0: It's it's really good. It's very coherent. Um, I recommend you go on many many more podcasts because you're very good at this. Um, and I also want to point people towards your um, articles in I am seventeen seventy six. Um also towards Twitter, um LM uh what is Rwanda? LM Rwanda it's, L-
1: it's LM Rwanda at the moment. LM yeah.
0: Rwanda, exactly. And is there any other thing that people need to
1: check out? Um hopefully we've there's another piece coming out um this week with IM seventeen seventy six, although Mark is very busy at the moment, so I don't know. Um that will be covering I'm hoping to do a lot more in the not too distant future about the history of immigration in Britain, which is a, a subject that is because uh, right back at the beginning of this discussion, I said Britain has been consumed by an almost complete cultural amnesia. This extends even to the fact that, you know, within living mem- well within living memory, this country was completely homogenous and we have a lot of strange ideas in our heads about what happened to change that when it started who started it what you know what it was for that i really want to dig into um in more depth so the first one of those is going to come out quite soon it'll probably be in im1776 again there's nowhere else that you can find me under this name at the moment although i do occasionally cheekily write under other pseudonyms in publications that you will be aware of but I'm not going to tell you where they are. You'll have to figure those ones out for yourself.
0: Exactly. Yeah, please do uh, keep and keep a curious eye out for uh, similarly sounding names, el- alliterations and and pen names. Um thank you so much, Lynn. This was this was lovely and um yeah, I will I will see you soon. This will come out on Monday.
1: Thank you very much. Looking forward to it.
0: If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it? And maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.